Good morning, everybody. Uh, we will finish up our study, Lord willing, in Daniel chapter 7 this morning. Not in Daniel, but in Daniel chapter 7 this morning. Uh, so we'll go ahead and get started on that. Let's have a quick word of prayer, and then we can get in our, in, into our study. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, this morning and give you praise for another opportunity to be together and just uh, be in your word. And pray, Lord, that you would be with us as we uh, look into these truths that you have for us in your word about uh, the kingdom and this uh, prophecy of Daniel's. We just praise you, Lord, so much for the information that you've given us, Lord, the, uh, the truth that we have here, and we pray, Lord, that we would be able to use it in our lives to bring honor and glory to you. We just pray, Lord, that you would be with us now, give us understanding, and help us, Lord, to know uh, what your word says. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One final lesson in Daniel chapter 7 this morning, part of our, uh, the final part of our study here, and I know it's taken us quite a while to get through the contents of this great prophecy of Daniel, but there's a lot of information here in this chapter that I think needs to be covered. The prophecy that Daniel is given in this chapter in the first year of the reign of Belshazzar is really given as an overall all-encompassing summary of the time of the Gentile domination over the nation of Israel, over God's chosen nation. And what we're seeing and what we're going to see in the coming chapters, really the last five chapters of the book, is a look at details within the framework that's established in what God shows to Daniel here. From this point on, Daniel, uh, or in Daniel, we're going to see details as they relate to these nations that have been represented here in chapter 7, um, to the impact that they will have on the nation of Israel specifically and on the coming kingdom that God will establish on earth and will set up his son as ruler over. By the time that we get done with Daniel, we're going to have a much fuller understanding of the plan of God as it relates to the nation of Israel, but also as it relates to the Gentile nations as well. So as we come to Daniel 7 in our study this morning, we've, we've finally come to the climax of the chapter. We've come to the focal point of God's plan, really, for all of creation um, as we look into this time of the restoration of all things. As we mentioned in our last study together last week, the sin of Adam has taken the world down a path that led it away from God. It was from that first sin that death was introduced into the world, and death led to corruption, and that corruption has tainted all things. Not only is man corrupted by sin, but all of creation groans and suffers in corruption as well. And the creation is waiting for the time when all things are restored, just like humankind is. We see that in Romans chapter 8. It's that restoration that is at the very center of God's plan. It's that restoration that God, in his sovereignty, is ultimately leading everything towards. We mentioned the cross of Christ last week, and we mentioned the purpose of the cross of Christ. It's to bring about salvation, but what's it to bring about salvation from? From sin, from death, from corruption. Christ's work on the cross took us from our corrupt state and brought us in line with the righteousness of God. He took that corruption away from us, he restored us, or he reconciles us to himself. Now, I, I want you to see this. Uh, turn with me over to the book of Romans for just a minute. I know we said Daniel 7, but we're going to go over to Romans chapter 5. And I just want to let you know that we're going to be all over in our study this morning. Uh, so get your fingers ready to turn to multiple passages. We're going to be in several different passages today. But Romans chapter 5, probably all of us are familiar with Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we all know that verse. And we're infinitely grateful for the truth in that verse. But Paul goes on from that verse, right? In verse 9, he says, Much more then, having now been justified by his blood. And that's what the cross accomplishes in us. In those who put their faith and trust in the work of the cross, justification, being declared righteous 
by God. We were declared righteous by God so that, and he continues on in verse 9, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. See, the end result of our justification, um, there is an end result of our justification that involves eternity. It involves not only a point in time, but it involves our salvation and for eternity after that. It involves being saved. It involves now living a new life. And it's a new life that has been reconciled to God by being justified through accepting the free gift of salvation. Down in verse 17 of Romans 5, Paul goes on to say, For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. And this sums up the point very nicely here. Through the one man, Adam, came death. Death reigned. The problem was introduced when Adam sinned. Through the one man, Jesus Christ, comes grace. The offering of the gift of righteousness which leads to eternal life. And reigning in life. Death is defeated. Life has now been restored to those who accept the free gift of salvation. And if we read through chapter 6, which we're not going to do, but I'm always tempted to read through Romans 6 whenever I turn over to Romans. But I'll, let you, I'll encourage you to read through Romans 6 on your own later. But if we read through Romans chapter 6, we'd see that we have been raised to new life in Christ, a life that is no longer in slavery to sin, but a life that is free to live as servants of the living God. That's a freedom that we did not have before. And we now have that freedom in our life here on earth, and we will have that same freedom for all eternity. In the kingdom of God, there will be those who live, who exist to be servants of God. Just as God created man to be in the first place, before the one man, Adam, messed that all up. Now we say that, We point to Adam, but I don't think we can be too hard on Adam because he wasn't any different than the rest of us. He was just the one who had the unfortunate distinction of being the first one to fall into sin along with Eve. But if any one of us had been in his place, yeah, we'd still be a fallen race, wouldn't we? So the cross of Christ is the way in which God provided a fix for the sin problem brought about by Adam at the fall. A fix that everyone who's going to be a part of God's kingdom is going to have to take part of in faith or through faith. It's this time when everything is fixed that we're going to look at in our study this morning that Daniel's prophecy is leading us towards. The time when the world is going to be restored to God. Just to highlight a few of the main points that we've seen so far in chapter 7. We've looked at this chapter over several months, and I don't even remember when the first day was that we, the date of the first lesson of chapter 7 was. But it's been a couple of months at least. Uh, So we've looked at it over a couple different months, so I just want to give you a brief recap of what we've seen so far. We've seen that Daniel was in uh, in the middle of a vision that he had one night in bed. He wakes up uh, because he has this vision. The vision starts with the great sea being stirred up. And we said that the sea was, was the mass of humanity. And four beasts come up out of the sea that's stirred up. And the beasts represent four nations. There's Babylon, there's Medo-Persia, there's Greece, and then finally there's Rome. And out of the last one, the fourth beast, the Roman Empire, the last human empire comes a little horn that represents the final world ruler. And we said this is the Antichrist. That little horn is the Antichrist. And the Antichrist, as we saw in in our last few studies, um, well, actually in our last study, 
we saw that he's going to be slain. He's going to be judged by God in order to make way for the last kingdom on earth, the final kingdom that will ever be needed on earth. And that really brings us to where we're at in our study of the chapter. Right after the judgment has been passed on earth, the Antichrists and the nations have been judged. And we looked last time at three different judgments uh, that comprise the judgments of the nation. There's the, the judgment when Christ returns in the air with the battle or really the slaughter at Armageddon in Revelation chapter 19. There's the separation of the sheep and the goats, which takes place shortly after the events of that batter, battle, which we see in Matthew chapter 25. And then we also looked at the great white throne judgment, which takes place after the thousand years of the millennial kingdom are completed in Revelation chapter 20. But now, after the final beast has been judged, we're ready to look at the coming kingdom, the last piece of Daniel's vision here. So look with me at verse 13. He says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now, we've read these two verses before, several times really in our study of the chapter. And we've mentioned that this is the the crux of the events presented within this vision of Daniel's. This is the point where the kingdom is given to the king, to Christ himself. And we have to keep in mind, the nation of Israel, at the time that Daniel receives this vision, they're living in a state where they, they have no hope, or at least very little hope. In, in front of them. If you think about Israel, or you think about Judah, really, that was taken into captivity from the Babylonians, but they had been in captivity for a number of years, somewhere around 40 years at this point. And things were getting worse for them, not better, but worse. Remember, this is in the first year of Belshazzar, and if you remember, Belshazzar was the one that took the vessels out of uh, the treasury and used them in his drunken party. Um, He was not one who was very kind to uh, the Jews. So 40 years has gone by. Things are getting worse. Now, when we think about history, 40 years might not seem like a long time from a historical standpoint. I think, I don't know if you're like me, but if I think back in time and I think of a a gap of 40 years for something that happened 2,000 years ago, that just seems like a, a little blip in the road to me. But if you think about 40 years, for an individual, 40 years is a long time. It's long enough to give up hope. 40 years could be a lifetime for someone or a half of a lifetime for someone. I mean, let's face it. If, if you were promised something 40 years ago, some of us may not even be able to think back to 40 years ago, but, but those of us that can, think of something that happened 40 years ago that someone promised you on a day that was 40 years ago from today. If you come to today and that promise hadn't been fulfilled, what are you thinking? That's not happening, right? It's, there's no point in, in, in holding on to hope for that. And so that's where the Jews really are at this time. They've been waiting for deliverance, but it's been a long time coming for them. The concept of the coming kingdom was not a new thing to them. This was something that had been promised to them from ages past. In fact, as far back as, as Genesis, there is the promise of a king and a kingdom. And I want us to see this. And this is where our, little, our fingers are going to get busy. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 49. And I'm going to try not to steal Toby's thunder here in Genesis 49, but we'll just look at this briefly. In Genesis 49, Jacob is telling his sons what lies ahead of them. And who are Jacob's sons, right? But they're the, 12, the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. We'll look down at verse 8 of Genesis 49. And this is where he gets to his son Judah. And it says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. 
Now, what's the significance of Judah? Who comes from the tribe of Judah? Well, specifically, David comes from the tribe of Judah, and the family of David after him as well. The kingly line comes from Judah. Look at verse 9. It says, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him up? Who dares rouse up the Lion of Judah? Now, this is a significant statement here. Keep that in mind. If you're taking notes this morning, just jot down off to the margin, Lion of Judah or Lion in Judah somewhere. And we'll get to that a little bit later in our study. But now look at verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people's. Now, here's the part I wanted to get to here. He mentions a scepter here. What does a scepter indicate? That's something that belongs to a king, along with a ruler's staff. He's saying that rule belongs to Judah. Until when? He says, until Shiloh comes. Well, who or what is Shiloh? Well, this is a reference to the one who has the right to rule, otherwise known as the Messiah. This is an early reference to Messiah coming. And to him shall be the obedience, it says, of all the peoples. That's him ruling over the nations. This is referring to the reign of the Messiah. Remember, this is Jacob speaking to his sons. There is no king in Israel at this point. There's barely an Israel at this point, right? I mean, in fact, Israel is just a big family at this point. It's Jacob and his sons and their sons after them. And yet here we see the promise of a king who will reign over all the peoples coming through Judah. Now this is a very early indication of this, but there are more of this throughout the Old Testament. And I just want to show you a couple more. So turn over with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in 2 Samuel 7, David is all ready to build a temple for God. David's already king at this point. And he's ready to build a temple for God. And he's feeling bad that he lives in a palace while God dwells in a tent, right? The tabernacle was still the center of worship, and so he wants to build a temple. But God stops him. God doesn't want him to. Why? Because he tells him that his descendant Solomon, a man of peace and not of bloodshed, he will build a temple for the Lord. And we see this down in uh, 7.13, verse 13 says, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me when he commits iniquity. I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. What is God promising to David here? That he will have a long life or a long kingdom? Well, not specifically just David, but the throne of David here is established forever. David's kingdom, the reign of the house of David, if you want to call it that, will last how long? Forever, right? Unlike Saul, whose kingdom God took away, He will not do that to David. So the kingship of David's line will continue without end. Another passage, turn over with me to Isaiah chapter 9. And this is a very familiar passage to us. We usually associate this passage with Christmas. And while we're a little early for Christmas, this would be a good time to warn you that Christmas is pretty close. So just as long as... It's kind of that time of year where we think, oh no, Christmas is like... We have already been putting up lights. I'm not naming names. (laughs) (laughs) Isaiah 9? Yeah, Isaiah 9. In Isaiah 9, we have a prophecy of the Messiah. Look down at Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. What do we see here? We have, we have the coming of the Messiah. And what will the Messiah do? He will rule. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom, Isaiah says. And this is going back to be the fulfillment of what was promised to David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. How will David's kingdom endure forever? Because his descendant, the Messiah of Israel, will sit on the throne of David, ruling and reigning forever. The nation of Israel knew this. They were expecting this. They were aware of the promised kingdom of God. Remember, to those living in Daniel's day, this was fresh in their minds. Isaiah wrote this not long before the captivity of Babylon. Even up to that point, they were given reminders by God about this kingdom that was coming. About this king who was coming to rule and reign on the throne of David. And then what happened? Catastrophe. They're taken captive by the Babylonians. Oh no, now all seems lost, right? Something happened to derail the promise of God, right? No, not quite. Because what happens just a few years into their captivity, right? They're they're all taken captive. And then a couple years later, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians, is given a vision by God. Remember that? What did Nebuchadnezzar see in his vision? What did God reveal to him in his dream as this man who had taken God's people captive? Daniel's, Daniel reveals the king's dream to him in, Dan, in Daniel chapter 2. And in the course of relating the interpretation of it, he tells him what the final part of Nebuchadnezzar's vision means in verse 44 of Daniel 2. It says, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. The enduring kingdom was coming, a kingdom which would not be destroyed, not left for another people, a kingdom that is established by God. Remarkable, even though all seems lost for God's chosen people. Remember, the northern kingdom had been taken away by the Assyrians a hundred years before this. And they were gone. They were assimilated into that culture, into that nation. They weren't coming back. And now, at the point that Nebuchadnezzar has his vision, the southern kingdom of Judah, they were captives of Babylon. They had just been taken captive by Babylon. And they were probably more than a few people expecting that their fate would be the same as what happened to their northern brothers. But then, even in this situation, God is still telling people about this kingdom which will endure forever and will not be destroyed. Now fast forward from that, 40 years later, that 40-year span that we were talking about, Forty years after this had been told to Nebuchadnezzar, nothing has changed for them. The Israelites are still in captivity. So, what about this kingdom? Well, God has not forgotten about his people. And so he gives Daniel this vision that we're seeing here in chapter 7. Another reminder. He reveals to Daniel, once again, the enduring kingdom is coming. It is still coming. And so what does Daniel see, and how does this kingdom come into being? And let's take a look at these verses uh, back in Daniel 7. I don't remember the last place I told you to go. Back in Daniel 7, let's take a look at these verses uh, piece at a time here. Verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. As we come to this point, Daniel's focus in the vision has just been on what was going on with the ancient of days, which we saw in verses 9 and 10 last time. And we noted that the Ancient of Days is God the Father, sitting on his throne in heaven, and he has now, uh, he has just judged the Gentile nations, right? That judgment has come. 
And now the scene shifts, or Daniel's attention is drawn to this, this new figure, it says, coming with the clouds of heaven. And this new figure, it says, is like a son of man. So who is this? Well, I'm pretty sure we all know who this is. This phrase is used 84 times in the Gospels to, you, to refer to one person. And that one person uses this title to refer to himself. This is the coming of the Messiah. This is the, the king who will sit on the throne of David forever. Jesus used this title to refer to himself. 31 times it's recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, 14 times in the Gospel of Mark, 26 times in the Gospel of Luke, 13 times it's recorded in the Gospel of John. Make no mistake, Jesus didn't just happen to use the same phrase that Daniel used. No, by using this phrase to refer to himself, Jesus was stating that he was this figure coming in the clouds in Daniel chapter 7. It wasn't coincidence at all. He was taking this prophecy to himself, telling everyone, I am the Son of Man. This is the title that he uses when speaking about his return, about his second coming. Over in the Gospel of Matthew, Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 16. The 16th chapter of Matthew, he says down in verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now here he's talking about his second coming. In verse 28, he's referring to the transfiguration, those that will see him, um, which will take place just six days after this, where Peter, James, and John are allowed to get a glimpse of him in his glorified form. But even that is an early look at what he will be like in the kingdom, the form the Son of Man will take. And then in a passage we saw last time, turn over to chapter 25 of Matthew. A few pages over. Down in verse 31 of Matthew 25. He says there, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And this is the start of the section where we saw Christ sitting in judgment of the nations, where he separates out the sheep from the goats. But the point is, there isn't any question that the one like, a son, like the Son of Man in Daniel 7.13 is anyone but the returning Messiah. It's Jesus Christ. And that's who we are seeing here. Turn back to Daniel 7. says here that he's coming in the clouds. Now, the mention of clouds in the passage seems almost insignificant. It just seems like, okay, it's a, it's, a nice, it's a nice setting, it's a nice pretty picture, but I think even this has some significance. After his resurrection, do you remember how Jesus left when he, dis, when he ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1? Acts 1, 9 through 11, I'll just read these. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. He ascended, and he was taken away on a cloud. And that's interesting, especially when we read what happens next in verse 10. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothes stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Just the same way. He left and was received in a cloud. He will return in a cloud. What is Daniel seeing? He's seeing the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Again, not a coincidence. This is all carefully thought out, carefully crafted in God's sovereign plan. Daniel is witnessing Jesus coming back in just the same way that he will ascend, and I say will because it was future for Daniel, right, in Acts chapter 1, in the same way as the disciples are told by the angels that he will return again. In 1 Thessalonians 4.17, we're also told that at the rapture, we will be caught up together with those who have already died. Where? 
in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. He will also be coming back in the clouds then as well. John also tells us in the book of Revelation, the very first chapter, verse 7, Behold, he was coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Even so, amen. So this is, this is marvelous stuff. You can't make this stuff up. This is God's sovereign plan at work here, tying these events all together for us in his word. So this is what Daniel is seeing in his vision. Okay, so we see Jesus coming in the clouds. Well, what happens next? Continue on to verse 13. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And here we have the interaction between the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. So we note here, and we talked about this a little bit last time, that they can't be the same person. We mentioned that in our last study. The Ancient of Days is God the Father. The Son of Man is God the Son. And that's what we're seeing presented here. And it's the same scene that the Apostle John saw in the book of Revelation as well. And we got more detail, and we get more detail uh, as to what goes on there. So, book of Revelation. Turn over to chapter 5 of Revelation with me. If you remember in our last study, we looked in Revelation 4, where we talked about God sitting on his throne, just like we saw in verses 9 to 10 of Daniel 7. Now, following that scene... We read this in Revelation 5, look at verse 1. And it says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, this book or this scroll is the basis for the entire rest of the book. It is what contains the authority to take back the earth, to take back what's going on on the earth to redeem the earth, to restore it to the manner in which it was created. The rest of the book will show the breaking of the seals and then the trumpets and the bowls and all the judgments as well. That's, that's in this book. Verse 2, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And you see this picture, and this is upsetting to John, right? Because he realizes the significance of what he's seeing here. If this book is not opened, then all is lost. There is no redemption. There is no reclaiming of the earth if no one can open this book. Then we get to verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Don't be upset, John. There is one who can open the book, who can unroll this scroll. And who is that? The lion of Judah, the root of David. Did you put down that note I told you to put down back when we were in Genesis 49? The Lion of Judah. Remember, Judah was the whelp of a lion, and he was the very beginning of the kingly line. Now we have the one who is ultimately going to fulfill that line. The lion is now fully matured. It also says he's the root of David, David's offspring from David's line. He's the one who will also fulfill what we saw back in 2 Samuel 7, the one who will sit on the throne of David forever. Verse 6 says, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took it out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Jesus Christ comes forward, the lamb that was slain, and takes the scroll or the book out of the right hand of God the Father. He is presented before the Ancient of Days, and he takes the scroll that only he can open. The scroll is his right to rule. We're seeing more detail in the same scene that's going on in Daniel chapter 7. John is getting a glimpse of the same scene that Daniel saw. Turn back to Daniel 7. 
since Daniel 7 is our main text. I have not forgotten that, by the way. But So the Son of Man is standing before the Ancient of Days. And in Daniel, it says he was given several things here, starting in verse 14. It says, And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So he's given several things here. The first off, it says he's given dominion. This is the word meaning ruling authority. He will be given absolute authority to rule. You realize the kingdom of God will be what we think of as, and I know we don't like this word, but a dictatorship or a monarchy, if you will. There will only be one man at the head of the kingdom. There is one sovereign ruler, and that will be Jesus Christ. We pride ourselves on our form of government where we have a republic that represents the will of the people and see a sole absolute leader as an evil form of government, right? We, we, we hear of a nation that has one person at the head of it, and we, and we cringe at that today. But the reason for that is the same reason as why John was weeping in Revelation chapter 5. There was no one who was worthy to absolutely rule on the earth. The problem with a, a dictatorship or a monarchy today is that there is no one who can no one person who can rule that is not tainted by sin, and therefore that system is destined to fail. At least in a republic like we have, we have the opportunity to try to influence what's going on. We all supposedly have a say in what's going on. But in the kingdom, you understand, we're not going to be voting because Jesus Christ will be making every decision perfectly. He will have all authority. Look down at verse 27 in Daniel 7. During the interpretation of this, the angel tells Daniel there, Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. Now here in this verse, we do see that, that saints will rule and reign in the kingdom as well, and we'll talk about that aspect in just a little bit. But look at that very last phrase again. This is where the buck stops. All the dominions will serve and obey him. Who is that? Who is, who, who's all the dominions? That's everybody. There won't be anyone who doesn't obey Christ, who doesn't submit to the authority of Christ. He will have absolute authority. Any authority that we have will ultimately be answerable to him, to the king. If we rule and reign with him, we'll be middle management because he will be our head. Now that concept might at first make people uneasy because we do look at a government where we have no voice as a bad thing. But the second thing from verse 14 that we see that Christ will have in his kingdom should give us great comfort in that. The second thing is that he's given glory, which is another word uh, for honor. He will have honor. What does that mean? It means that all those who submit under his authority, they won't resent him as their boss, as their head, as their leader, but they will give him honor. How often do we see that today? The leader of a nation that everyone respects and honors. We certainly don't have that in our country. And especially in countries where dictators or a sole ruler, there's very little honor for the one who's at, who's at the head. But when Christ is ruling from the throne of David, he will be honored by all. In other words, it will be a privilege to submit to the authority of the Son of Man. Think of working for the absolute best boss that you've ever had. And then take out any bad qualities that that best boss had, right? Everybody has something that they can nitpick from their boss, even ones they like. Take out any of those bad qualities and then take all of their good qualities that are left and multiply that by 10,000. And then you're still not even going to be close to how much of a privilege it's going to be under the rule of Jesus Christ. 
how refreshing it will be to live in a time when Jesus Christ is given nothing but honor. When you won't have to overhear conversations that make fun of him. Or see a TV, uh, a TV show that questions his work or questions the creation. Or look on the internet and find some article that, that questions everything that's going on around us. Or, and we won't have to hear his name being taken in vain just when we're walking down the street. Everyone will be living to give him honor and glory. Another thing that we see about the kingdom, verse 14, is the enormity of it. It will be all-encompassing. It says that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. And we just looked at verse 27, which said, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. Verse 27. This kingdom will have no rivals. It will encompass everyone and everything that is alive that is left on the earth at this time. There will be no other kingdom. No more wars, no more violence, no more conflict of any kind. It will encompass everything. Anyone that is in the kingdom at this point in time will, 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 uh, will serve and obey him. We're familiar with passages like Isaiah 11, verse 6, which says, And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Right? This is, this is a depiction of the way things will be in the kingdom. There will be no reason to fear even the animals. Children will be able to play with a leopard just as much as they can play with a lamb. We'll have petting zoos with fully grown leopards in them, right? You don't, you don't send the kids into the leopard, petting zoo, leopard part of the zoo today, right? I remember an article from a couple of years ago uh, about a lady who was at the zoo and she climbed over a barrier into a jaguar's enclosure to take a picture of it. And guess what happened? We're not in the kingdom. She got attacked by the leopard or the jaguar or whatever it was. But that's today. That's in our age, right? We're not in the kingdom yet. Go ahead and pet the lambs and the calves. Don't pet the leopards or the jaguars. Don't take that first to heart today. In chapter 35 of Isaiah, we read this in verse 7. It says, and the scorched land will become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, its resting place. Grass becomes reeds and rushes. What's that saying? The creation itself will be restored. It will be as God intended it to be before the fall. Sin will no longer have any influence or corruption on the earth, even when it comes to the natural things, the natural elements. We won't have to weed our gardens or spray Roundup on things and try to uh, get rid of things in our lawn. Keep in mind that what we're seeing here is something that is not something that just has spiritual significance. This is real. This involves the real natural elements as well. We're talking about a real physical kingdom that exists on the earth. Animals will be changed. The creation will be changed. People will be changed. Not just in a spiritual way, but in a very real, very physical way. And I think some people miss that. They think that the kingdom only exists in a spiritual sense. And that there's no physical reality to what we're being promised here. But this is not what we're seeing here. Babylon was real. Medo-Persia. Greece, Rome, they were all real nations, all real people. They ruled over areas of land that fought and killed other nations and that fell to other nations. It wasn't just a spiritual thing. It was something that really happened. So the kingdom that is coming to supersede them will be a real kingdom, a real physical kingdom. Another thing about this kingdom is not only what it encompasses in, in space, but also in time. Uh, second part of verse 14, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And then down in verse 18, it also says, but the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. How long will this kingdom last? Well, we, we, we hear about a thousand year portion of it, right? 
There is a portion of the kingdom that will last that long that's referred to as the millennial kingdom, but it doesn't end there. At that, the end of that thousand years, the kingdom just changes form a bit. There will be a new heaven and a new earth at the end of the thousand years, and we will move with it. But the kingdom itself will last for all eternity. It will not pass away. It will not be destroyed. It will exist forever, all ages to come. The language here can't be any clearer. Nothing will ever happen to abolish or remove this kingdom. It will last forever. Another thing to note about this coming kingdom, who is it for? It is established by God, um, and it, as all things, are for his glory. But who are the recipients of this kingdom? And we see it clearly all throughout the passage. In verse 18, it says, But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Verse 22 says, Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Verse 27, Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. Who takes possession of this kingdom that Jesus Christ comes back to establish? The saints, the holy ones, it says. Now, we hear holy ones, and we say angels are called holy ones, and they are called holy ones in Scripture. And I'm sure angels will play some part, but that's not who's in view here. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that it is man, not angels, who were intended to rule over the creation. Even though now for a little while we are, we are not ruling over it as we should, but when will we? When we take possession of the kingdom. The saints are those who have been redeemed from every age. There are Old Testament saints, there are church age saints, there are tribulation saints. Anyone who has ever called upon the name of God in faith for salvation will be a part of this kingdom. There will be different parts to play. There will be different roles and responsibilities, but we will all be there participating in this glorious homecoming. What a glorious and thrilling thing to think about. Daniel is in the unique position to get a glimpse of an event that will not happen from his perspective for at least 2,500 years. And he's being allowed to witness the scene where Jesus Christ comes to take his kingdom. The time when all things are restored as to what they should be. And the earth is filled with those who are living to give glory and honor to him who lives forever. What an awesome sight. What an awesome event. And the enormity of what Daniel is seeing in this vision is not lost on him. He finishes the chapter. And yes, we're finally getting to the last verse in the chapter. He finishes the chapter in verse 28. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. This is quite the vision to behold. It goes from the four greatest and most powerful empires that the world has ever or will ever know it proceeds with the judgment of those nations and ends with the restoration of all things in God's glorious, eternal, earthly kingdom. Daniel is greatly alarmed. His face turns pale. He almost becomes sick here, having seen this vision. But he says, but he keeps the matter to himself. Now, I hear that phrase, and to me it sounds like, so he didn't tell anybody? But this doesn't mean that he didn't tell anybody. This doesn't mean that he, that he hides this. We already saw at the beginning of the chapter that he wrote it down and related it, right? Because what are we doing? We're reading about it, right? We're studying it. So that doesn't mean that he didn't tell anybody about this. But what it means is that he kept it in his heart. Or we might say he took it to heart. Daniel absorbed the importance, the magnitude of what he was seeing here. And I would say after reading through this chapter that we ought to do the exact same thing. This is it, folks. This is what it's all about. The coming kingdom, the restoration of all things. What we're seeing here is what will someday be our home. 
All that we do should be with the focus of this day, this time in mind. Because this is what it's all about. This is what truly matters, where it's all going. Everyone we know, everyone we come across is represented somewhere here in this chapter. They will either be with us in the kingdom, ruling and reigning with Christ for all eternity, because they've placed their faith and trust in Christ for salvation. Or they will be a part of the judgments that Daniel saw for the nations. There is no other option. No one slips through the cracks anywhere. This isn't a fairy tale. It isn't something to think about down the road. Not something to study when we feel like it. It's what we ought to be thinking about, knowing what's in store for us each and every day. Jesus Christ is coming again. And we not only need to be awaiting that return, but we ought to be preparing for it as well by living as if it will happen any day. And that ought to be something that we take to heart as Daniel did. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, and we just give you praise for uh, the plans, the sovereignty, uh, Lord, of, of all that you have uh, planned and in store for your creation. We thank you, Lord. First of all, we thank you, Lord, for the gift of salvation. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your son dying on the cross for our sins, Lord. And, and we thank you that, um, Lord, as those that, uh, those that have put our faith and trust in that for our salvation, Lord, we thank you for all that you have in store for us someday. We do pray, Lord, that you would give us a boldness to be sharing that truth with others. Lord, those are so many around us, so many that we know that, that need to hear the gospel. And I pray, Lord, that it would be just a, a burden on our hearts to be sharing that each and every day. I thank you, Lord, for the opportunities that we have. I thank you for the time that we can study your word. I thank you, Lord, for giving us an opportunity to know what you have in store for us for eternity. And I just praise you, Lord, and thank you for that. Pray, Lord, now that you would be with us as we... Uh, uh, and here today, as we go into the next hour, uh, just pray that you would give us understanding into your word as uh, Pastor Sito brings us the word today. Just pray, Lord, that you would um, just be with him and that you would encourage him, Lord, and that uh, there would be a time that would bring glory to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.